Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement by Angela Y. Davis. We are about to embark on Chapter 8, which is entitled Feminism and Abolition, Theories and Practices for the 21st Century. Before we do that, I would like to ask you to please share a link to this episode on whichever social media platform you may frequent the most often. I'd like to also remind you that every day at 8 o'clock a.m., a new episode of Rafa Reading Daily is released across all streaming platforms. And on our last episode of Rafa Reading Daily, we read through Chapter 7 of Freedom is a Constant Struggle, which was entitled The Truth-Telling Project, Violence in America. And some of the... Some of the statements that stood out to most to me, stood out the most to me by Angela was the thanks that she gave to Ferguson activists. She thanked them for refusing to drop the torch of struggle, thanked them for not going back to business as usual, thanked them for not settling for fast solutions or easy answers or formulaic resolutions. And I believe I spoke about how those are all things that I believe we have adopted as a mentality here at the May 30th Alliance, not allowing these, not allowing ourselves to be bogged down by the idea of looking for easy answers. A lot of times people ask you, well, what's the solution? What's the answer? What's the end game? And the truth is that there is no simple way to quantify what the end game is or what the solution is because of how deeply rooted these issues are. Angela spoke about how Ferguson had became synonymous with progressive protests from Palestine to South Africa, from Syria to Germany, and Brazil to Australia. And I think that that underscores the importance of collectivism, globalization, and intersectionality that Angela has been touching on and that we've been speaking about through these first 80-plus pages. She also spoke about how if it wasn't for this strong push that they made in struggling and advocating for Mike Brown, it may not have been as much attention put onto Eric Garner and onto Tamir Rice and onto Walter Scott and to Freddie Gray and Alicia Thomas and Miriam Carey and Rakia Boyd. And we spoke about how important it is for us organizationally here in Rockford, Illinois, to put an emphasis on Tyrus Jones, on Denzel Duvon, on Jose Gonzalez Jr., on Little Mike Sago, on each individual and I'm missing names, of course, who has suffered the brunt of this police terrorism and, and racial injustice. So that way we can link them to the people who may come in the future or so that way they can be linked to other to the stories of national attention. One of the things we've seen happen when. Excuse me, George Floyd, one of the things we've seen happen when George Floyd was murdered is that the amount and the emphasis that protesters and activists and communities and collectives put on advocating for George Floyd, the residual effect was that it rose up the story of Breonna Taylor. It rose, it made the story of what happened to Ahmaud Arbery rise up. It made the story of what would happen to Jacob Blake rise up. These stories became heightened. The consciousness became heightened to the issues and manifestations of police terrorism and police violence. And so we have to keep that in mind when we are when people may say to you, well, it's just one person or it's, you know, however many people died today because of this. And only one person died from being killed by the police. We have to keep in our minds that this individual person is a symbol for everybody else who has dealt with this in the past and who will deal with it in the future. 
And then the last thing I think it's important to point out that Angela spoke about was the emphasis we must put and the importance, I should, I rather should say, I guess importance and emphasis, we should put on building vocabularies that properly define the issues that are present in these struggles. She disagreed with Obama when he said that we needed less talk and more action. She said, of course, we need action as well, but we do need more talks. We do need to learn how to talk about race, to learn how to talk about these things, to learn the definitions of these things, to, to further our concepts and our ideologies around these things. And that has been another tenet of the May 30th Alliance is furthering the conversation, furthering dialogue, pushing, pushing, pushing against the status quo, the status quo of misinformation or the status quo of lack of information. We have gotten so comfortable in this society with not communicating about things, not learning, not becoming informed about things. We live in the information age and we might have just as much misinformation and being put out there as we have information. And we might just have just as many people purposefully staying away from becoming informed as we have people going out of their way to be informed. Okay, so let's dive back into freedom is a constant struggle. Chapter 8, Feminism and Abolition, Theories and Practices for the 21st Century. Speech Delivered as the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture Annual Public Lecture in collaboration with the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality at the University of Chicago, May 4th, 2013. Let me say, this is the first time in many years that I have spent an extended period of time in Chicago. That is to say, four days, four whole days. And if yesterday and today felt like the Chicago I've always known, Tuesday and Wednesday were the most beautiful days in the city I've experienced. And I started to think, quote, I can live in Chicago, end quote, until the wind and the cold returned yesterday. But I still like Chicago. And it is wonderful to be here no matter what the season might be. This amazing city has such a history of struggle. It's the city of the Haymarket Martyrs, the city of radical labor unions, the city of resistance to the police assassinations of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. It's the city of Puerto Rican activism against colonialism. It's the city of immigrant rights activists. And of course, it is the city of the Chicago Teachers Union. Now, a few years ago, Chicago was the city that developed a revived national movement to support Asada Shakur. And I remember Lisa Brock and Derek Cooper Tracy Matthews, Bethy Ritchie, Kathy Cohen, and others called for a renewed campaign to defend the rights and the life of Asada Shakur. Yesterday, May 2nd, 2013, 40 years after Asada was shot by New Jersey State Police and falsely accused of the murder of State Trooper Werner Forrester, she became the first woman ever to be placed on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list. Why, we should ask, was it necessary to put a woman's face on terrorism? especially in the aftermath of the tragic bombing of the Boston Marathon? Why was it necessary to put a black face on terrorism, especially after initial news about the Boston bombing that the perpetrator was a black man, or if not a black man, at least a dark-skinned man in a hoodie, the ghost of Trayvon Martin? Asada is not a threat in the way she has been represented by the FBI as someone who is awaiting to commit an act like the Boston Marathon bombing. Asada is currently... Excuse me, Asada is certainly not a terrorist. But if she would not and is in no position to commit acts of violence against the U.S. government, 
The fact that the FBI decided to announce with great fanfare that she is now the only woman on the most wanted terrorist list should cause us to wonder what the underlying agenda might be. And I should say that I especially empathize with Asada because it was 43 years ago that I was placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And some of you may have seen the new documentary on my trial, which shows President Richard Nixon openly and ceremoniously congratulating the FBI for catching me in the process of labeling me a terrorist as well. So I know the dangerous consequences that can follow from this ideological labeling process. That this is happening 40 years after Asada's original arrest should give us cause to reflect. First of all, it reminds us that there is much work left over from the 20th century, especially for those of us who identify as advocates for peace, for racial gender, sexual justice, for a world that is no longer mutilated by the ravages of capitalism. We are four decades removed from the era of the 1960s, which is universally remembered as an era for radical and revolutionary activism. Being at a historical distance, however, does not extricate us from the responsibility of defending and indeed liberating those who were and are still willing to give their lives so that we might build a world that is free of racism and imperialist war and sexism and homophobia and capitalist exploitation. So I'd like to point out that individual memories are not nearly as long as the memories of institutions and especially repressive institutions. The FBI is still haunted by the ghost of J. Edgar Hoover and the CIA and ICE are institutions that have active and vivid memories of the mass organized struggles to end racism, to end war, to overthrow capitalism. But Leonard Peltier is still behind bars. And Mondo Wilanga and Ed Poindexter have been in prison for some 40 years. Sundiata Akoli, Asada's comrade, is in prison. Herman Bell and Veronza Bowers and Romain Fitzgerald are still behind bars. And my co-defendant, Rukul McGee, has been in prison for about 50 years, an entire half century. Two of the Angola Three, Herman Wallace and Albert Woodfox, are still in prison in solitary confinement. And of course, Mamiya Abu-Jamal, although he was released from death row, and that was a people's victory, is still behind bars. And even as the U.S. government, and this is ironic, <clears throat> excuse me, and even as the U.S. government, and this is ironic, singles out Asada as a terrorist and issues an open invitation to anyone to capture her and bring her back to the U.S., and there are so many mercenaries, trained by Blackwater and other private security firms who probably will want to take up that bid for $2 million. The U.S. government holds in prison within this country five Cubans who attempted to prevent terrorist attacks on Cuba. They were investigating terrorism and in turn were charged with terrorism. I'm referring to the Cuban Five. Free the Cuban Five. Now, the attack on Asada incorporates the logic of the very terrorism with which they have falsely charged her. What might they expect to accomplish other than causing new generations of activists to recoil in fear? The FBI is attempting to persuade people, it seems to me, who are the grandchildren of Asada's generation, and mine as well, to turn away from struggles to end police violence, to dismantle the prison industrial complex, struggles to end violence against women, struggles to end the occupation of Palestine, struggles to defend the rights of immigrants here and abroad. And I think you here in Chicago should be especially suspicious of the representations of Asada as a cop killer. Her hands were in the air when she was shot in the back, 
which temporarily paralyzed the arm she would have had to have used to pick up a gun. You should be, spe you should be suspicious because, according to the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, 63 people have been killed by the Chicago Police Department in the last four years, and another 253 have been shot, 172 black people and 27 Latinos. Let's have a reflection. I love the purposefulness in which Angela links struggles with each other. And it's something that I've been trying to progressively get better at doing is when you, as a black man, when I'm articulating the unique specific struggles that black men go through, to be able to tie the commonalities that I experience to the struggles that black women go through, the, the struggle that black members of the LGBTQIA plus community go, to, go through, struggles that Latino members of the community go through, that Latinas go through, that struggles that black middle class people may go through that's similar to struggles that I go through as somebody who's black in poverty and, and struggles that, and then, so, and that's a very much a, a home base intersectionality. These are all groups that I can find within Rockford, Illinois, collectives that exist within Rockford, Illinois, communities that exist within Rockford, Illinois. And so I have gotten more adept at being able to do that. But I think the further broadening is being able to link those struggles with struggles that people face in Palestine, like Angela has pointed out, struggles that people face in Latin America, as Angela has pointed out through, throughout this reading that we've done here, struggles that people face in Europe. And I think once that type of comfortability with Articul articulating these commonalities comes into play. Once you begin to learn the vocabulary, you begin to learn the concepts, you broaden out your ideology, it becomes more inclusive, more representative. I think that that is when you can begin to have, begin to be equipped to take actual steps and actionable steps that will be progressive towards dealing with these struggles. But it takes a, 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 an extended amount of time to build that type of to build that type of vocabulary, to build that vernacular, to build that understanding, to build that empathy, to build out that ideology. And I think we cannot be in the, we can't have the desire to try to rush that or to try to speed that up. It's just like a child growing, you know, you, and I just seen a quote recently from H-Rap Brown. That's not the, it's formerly known as H-Rap Brown, uh, but he had a quote that talked about how a newborn baby struggles to breathe. And, but through that struggle is how it learns to grow and that our struggles have to be the same. Our struggles are the same way. And I feel that specifically in Rockford, Illinois, this is a struggle in its, in its early years and it's, if not its infancy in its toddler years. And the struggle still slowly learning how to use its eyes and use its ears and use its hands and feel and, and even past being able to hear and feel and see and use those senses, being able to perceive. And, and so that's a, some thoughts that I have from what we just read there. Also, I think it's important to expound upon Asada Shakur has been a repeated character in this book. And Angela has made sure to put forth the effort to explain how there's a reason that Asada has been criminalized and stigmatized and vilified and then was recriminalized, stigmatized and vilified. And it's to maintain status quo. It's to try to inflict fear. It's to use psychological 
tactics to try to to try and disincentivize people from becoming active in these struggles. They they seen the the rise in consciousness. They seen the rise in in mobility and the rise in organizing. And so they want to use Asada to hold her up. She's, they see that she's a champion for the people. She's somebody who's looked at as symbolic. And so they want to be able to say, if you struggle at this level, if you become this, this symbolic, this is what we will do to you. This is what the system will do to you. She wants, they want to be able to make uh, Malcolm X put it perfectly. They want to make people who should be your allies, see you, and think that and think that they're enemies. And so they criminalize Asada. So especially black liberals or black middle class people or black people who are whose consciousness is not heightened yet. They think that because she's criminalized and vilified and stigmatized and high up on this terrorist list, then the things she stood for must be wrong. Then the actions she took must be wrong. And again, it also does the job of trying to, of, of forcing people to, are you willing to sacrifice this much? You know, it forces you to ask that question when they, when they put her on this list. And sometimes when people ask that question, they look inside and they're not willing to give that much. And so they think they can't give anything at all. And so they remove themselves. And what I find is that if people can take the time, like we talked about, to become educated, to become informed, to have dialogue about these things, to build out ideology about these things, what they will find is that everyday people are like, have the same strength and power as Asada Shakur and Dr. King and Angela Davis and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X and Huey Newton and Stokely Carmichael. And the same way that these men and these women and countless other people who I, whose names I'm not recalling right now were willing to sacrifice life and willing to sacrifice freedom willing to sacrifice their future for the the greater good and for an end to this racist violence and this racist repression that we can we have those capabilities too we have that capacity too everyday people have that same capacity everyday people in 2022 have that same capacity but it has to be built. It's a seed that has to be watered and it has to grow. And so they, they but they use these, these criminalization tactics to try to stop the seed from ever growing and to cut the, cut the tree down at a stump, at a stump, stump, stump. Okay, let's continue reading. You should be very suspicious because as more youth are rendered disposable, as more youth become a part of surplus populations that can only be managed through imprisonment, the schools that could begin to solve the problems of disposability are being shut down. According to Karen Lewis, who is one of the most amazing leaders of our time, some 61 schools in this city face closure. And this is a good way to stage our discussion of feminism and abolition, which I consider to be essential theories and practices for the 21st century. Asada Shakur exemplifies within feminist struggles and theories the way black women's representations and their involvement in revolutionary struggles militated against prevailing ideological assumptions about women. In fact, during the latter 20th century, there were numerous debates about how to define the category, quote, woman, end quote. There were numerous struggles, struggles over who got included and who was excluded from that category. And these struggles, I think, are key to understanding why there was some measure of resistance from women of color 
and also poor and working class white women to identify with the emergent feminist movement. Many of us considered that movement at that time to be too white and especially too middle class, too bourgeois. And in some senses, the struggle for women's rights was ideologically defined as a struggle for white middle class women's rights, pushing out working class and poor women, pushing out black women, Latinas, and other women of color from the dis discursive field covered by the category, quote, woman, end quote. The many constatations over this category helped to produce what we came to call, quote, radical women of color feminist theories and practices, end quote. At the very time these questions were being raised, these questions about the universality of the category, quote, woman, end quote, similar concerns about the category, quote, human, end quote, were being debated, especially in relation to the underlying individualism of human rights discourses. How could this category be rethought, not only to embrace Africans, indigenous people, other non-Europeans, but how might it apply to groups and communities as well, not only to individuals? And then, of course, the slogan, quote, women's rights are human rights, end quote, began to emerge in the aftermath of an amazing conference that took place in 1985 in Nairobi, Kenya. I guess there are some people in the house that attended that conference. Am I right? Okay. I see some hands out there. Great. It was an amazing conference. At that conference, for the very first time, there was a very large delegation of U.S. women of color. And I think it was the first time that U.S. women of color became active in an international arena. The problem was that many of us then thought that what we needed to do was to expand the category, quote, women, end quote, so that it could embrace black women, Latina women, Native American women, and so forth. We thought that by doing that, we would have effectively addressed the problem of the exclusivity of the category. What we didn't realize then was that we would have to rewrite the whole category rather than simply assimilate more women into an unchanged category of what counts as, quote, women, end quote. Now, a few years earlier, 1979, a white woman by the name of Sandy Stone was working at the feminist recording company Olivia Records. Some of you may remember Olivia Records. This woman was broadly attacked by some of... This woman was broadly attacked by some self-defined lesbian feminists for not really being a woman and for bringing masculine energy into women's spaces. As it turns out, Sandy Stone was a trans woman who later wrote some of the germinal, germinal text in the development of transgender studies. This woman was not considered a woman because she was assigned the gender designation of, quote, male, end quote, at birth. But this did not prevent her from later asserting a very different gender identity. So let me fast forward to the present. When scholars and activists are engaged with questions of prison abolition and gender nonconformity and have produced some of the most interesting theories, some of the most interesting ideas and approaches to activism. But before I pursue this line of thought, let me say parenthetically that I had the opportunity this morning to attend a very exciting colloquium on the topic of the asylum and the prison organized by Professor Bernard Harcourt of the Political Science Department. We can all applaud and I heard two very brilliant presentations by Michael Rimbus and Liat Ben Moshi. I wish that all of you have been able to hear them. It is often assumed that such issues as psychiatric incarceration and the imprisonment of people who are intellectually and developmentally disabled are marginal questions. However, precisely the opposite turns out to be the case. 
As both of the presenters emphasized, there is a great deal to be learned about the potential of decarceration and abolition in relation to prisons, about the possibilities of abolishing the prison industrial complex by looking very closely at the deinstitutionalization de of asylums and psychiatric institutions. So having said that, what I want to do is address another issue and struggle that is unfortunately too often considered to be marginal to the larger prison abolition struggle. To return to those historical contestations over the category, quote, woman, end quote, let's fast forward to the present. Let's visit the San Francisco Bay Area where I live and an organization that is called Transgender, Gender Variant, Intersex Justice Project. Now, TGI Justice Project is an organization led by women of color, by trans women of color. The executive director is a woman whose name is Miss Major, and, yeah, I'll tell Miss Major that she got a lot of applause in Chicago, and that's especially important because she was raised on the south side of Chicago, not very far from here. She describes herself as black, formerly incarcerated, male to female, transgender elder, born and raised on the south side of Chicago, and a veteran activist. She participated in the Stonewall Rebellion in 1969, but she says she was not really politicized until the wake of the Attica Prison Rebellion. I was just talking to her the other day and learned that the person who politicized her is Big Black, one of the Attica defendants and a close friend of mine until his death. Frank Smith was known as Big Black, one of the leaders of the Attica Rebellion, who eventually won a lawsuit against the state of New York in connection with Attica. Miss Major met him in prison. She said that he was not only totally accepting of her gender presentation, but he instructed her on so many issues regarding the relationship between racism, imperialism, and capitalism. Now, TGI Justice Project is a grassroots organization that advocates for, defends, and includes primarily trans women and trans women of color. These are women who have to fight to be included within the category, quote, woman, end quote, in a way that is not dissimilar from the earlier struggles of black women and women of color who were assigned the gender female at birth. Moreover, they have worked out what I see as a deeply feminist approach that we would do well to understand and emulate. Miss Major says she's... Miss Major says she prefers to be called Miss Major, not Miss Major. Oh, wait, 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 let me see. Ms., I think, not Ms. Okay. Miss Major says she prefers to be called Miss Major, not Ms. Major, because a trans woman is not yet liberated. The work of TGIJP is deeply feminist because it is performed at the intersection of race, class, sexuality, and gender and because it moves from addressing the individual predicaments of the members of their community, who constitute the individuals who are most harassed by law enforcement, most arrested and incarcerated, to larger questions of the prison industrial complex. Trans women of color, trans, trans women of color end up primarily in male prisons, especially if they have not undergone gender reassignment surgery, and many of them don't want to undergo that surgery. And sometimes, even if they have undergone the surgery, they end up being placed in men's prisons. After they are in prison, they often receive more violent treatment by the guards than anyone else, and on top of that, they are marked by the institution as targets of male violence. This is so much the case that cops so easily joke about the sexual fate of trans women in the male prisons where they are actually sent. Usually sent, excuse me. Male prisons are represented as violent places. 
But we see, especially by looking at the predicament of trans women, that this violence is often encouraged by the institutions themselves. Many of you are familiar with the Minneapolis case of CeCe McDonald, who was charged with murder after an encounter with a group that yelled out racist, homophobic, and transphobic slurs all at the same time. She is now in a men's prison in Minnesota, serving a three and a half year sentence. But on top of this violence, trans women are often denied their hormonal treatments, even if they have valid prescriptions. The point that I'm trying to make is that we learn a great deal about the reach of the prison system, about the nature of the prison industrial complex, about the reach of abolition by examining the particular struggles of trans prisoners and especially trans women. Perhaps most important of all, and this is so central to the development of feminist abolitionist theories and practices, we have to learn how to think and act and struggle against that which is ideologically constituted as, quote, normal, end quote. Prisons are constituted as, quote, normal, end quote. It takes a lot of work to persuade people to think beyond the bars and to be able to imagine a world without prisons and the struggle for the abolition of imprisonment as the dominant mode of punishment. And we can ask ourselves in that context, why are trans women, and especially black trans women who cannot easily pass, why are they considered so far outside the norm? They are considered outside the norm by almost everyone in this society. And of course, we've learned a great deal about gender over the past decades. I suppose just about everyone who's in the field of feminist studies has read Judith Butler's Gender Trouble. But you should also read Beth Ritchie's most recent book, an amazing book called Arrested Justice, Black Women, Violence in America's Prison Nation. And specifically look at her account of the case of the New Jersey Four, of four young black lesbians who were just walking around having fun in Greenwich Village but ended up in prison because they defended themselves from male violence. This violence was further consolidated by the fact that they saw themselves represented in the media as, quote, a lesbian wolf pack, end quote. We see that here race, gender, sexual nonconformity can all lead to racist bestialization, which is an attack as one of my students, Eric Stanley, points out in his dissertation, not only against humans, but against animals as well. TGI Justice Project is an abolitionist organization. It calls for a dialectic of service provision and abolitionist advocacy. TGIJP thus promotes a kind of feminism that urges to be flexible, one that warns us not to become too attached to our objects, whether they are objects of study, I say that for the academics in the house, or whether they are objects of our organizing, I say this for the activists in the house. TGI Justice Project shows us that these objects can become something entirely different as a result of our work. It shows us that the process of trying to assimilate into an existing category in many ways runs counter to efforts to produce radical or revolutionary results. And it shows us that we not only should not try to assimilate trans women into a category that remains the same, but that the category itself has to change so it does not simply reflect normative ideas of who counts as women and who doesn't. But by extension, there's another lesson. Don't even become too attached to the concept of gender because, as a matter of fact, the more closely we examine it, the more we discover that it is embedded in a range of social, political, cultural, and ideological formations. It is not one thing. There is not one definition, and certainly gender cannot now be adequately described as binary structures with 
quote, male, end quote, being one pole, and, quote, female, end quote, at the other. And so, bringing trans women, trans men, intersex, many other forms of gender nonconformity into the concept of gender, it radically undermines the normative assumptions of the very concept of gender. I want to share with you this wonderful quote from Dean Spade, who I understand spoke yesterday. Quote, from my understanding, end quote, he writes, quote, essential endeavor of feminist, queer, and trans acti activists has been to dismantle the cultural ideology, social, social practices, and legal norms that say certain body parts determine gender identity and gender social characteristics and roles. We have fought against the idea that the presence of uteruses or ovaries or penises or testicles should be understood to determine such things as people's intelligence, proper parental roles, proper physical appearance, proper gender identity, proper labor roles, proper sexual partners and activities, and capacity to make decisions. We have opposed medical and scientific assertions that affirm the purported health of traditional gender roles and activities that pathologize the, body, pathologize the bodies that defy these norms. We continue to work to dispel myths that body parts somehow make us who we are and make us less than or better than, depending on which one we may have. Okay, let's, we're going to take a moment to reflect and end this episode here. It's not the ending of the chapter, but I think it's about halfway through the chapter. So tomorrow we will complete chapter eight. So I think that this was a very important chapter. Again, Angela Davis has been at the helm of furthering our discussions about the issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And she does an excellent job of turning our vantage point to what that experience is like for folks from the trans community. And for me, in the last two years, this has been the most engagement or interaction that I've had with members of the trans community, for members of the LGBTQIA plus community, and it's been the most that I've, I've learned and become informed about the experiences, the unique experiences that members of that community have. And it's, I've, it's not something that I'm very well versed in. It's something that I'm still trying to learn every day. It's something that these are these things that these issues we're talking about are things that you don't just wake up one day and now you know everything or now you don't just wake up one day and now you're you've learned everything it is to learn about being against racism or being anti-racist or being anti-misogynist or being anti-transphobic or anti-homophobic. These are processes that we have to continue to engage in every day, every week, every month, every year. We cannot become complacent. Uh, and so for me, I'm, I've read different pe pieces of literature where I've learned different vocabulary. I've spoken to different people and I've learned about different vocabulary. I've learned terminology that is appropriate to use, terminology that's not appropriate to use. And to me, one of the things that I've always felt when it comes to dealing with people who are uninformed about racism or uninformed about the issues of police terrorism or mass incarceration is that it's nothing wrong with not knowing something. And it's something, nothing wrong with being uninformed. 
as long as you are willing to learn, as long as you are willing to become informed. The issue comes in when people who are uninformed or unlearned are not willing to become informed, are not willing to become learned, and then they also are espousing beliefs, or they're also taking active roles to try to keep situations or maintain the status quo that exists of misinformation or disinformation or ignorance. And those, those are the people we have to be combative against. And those are the people that we have to be actively and openly struggling against. But the people who just don't know, those are the people that we want to be trying to embrace and trying to engage in and trying to inform and give literature and, and give and interact with so they can have these experiences to learn about groups of people and communities that they don't know about and that they uh, have not interacted with before. And so, and, and for me, the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice has been something that from my inception or my beginning, my entry point was painted through the, okay, I'm gonna let this ambulance go by. But I was saying that since my entry point into this struggle, I have I have marched and protested and been arrested with members of the LGBTQIA plus community. I have marched and been arrested and protested uh, with trans folks, with, with bi folks and uh, with non-binary folks. And and I've again try to listen in situations and learn in situations and that's not something that is ever fulfilled or is ever finished uh, but i said though i said that my entry point was being was always being next to those people or my entry point was was going through the struggle with people from that community to specifically point out that that is how i identify this struggle i identify you know what some of my first times being arrested with people who were trans and who were arrested and who were violated and who were not treated justly and who were treated inhumanely. And so I, I, I see the connections in those things because I've, I've, I've witnessed somebody experience those things. My entryway was was people who were from the trans community who were had way more information than me about police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, and were like teachers to me, and were were showing me places where I could gain and access more information about these things, teaching me things about myself that I didn't know, and about my struggles that I was ignorant to. And so I think that I'm thankful for folks like Angela Davis and folks like the ones I've interacted here with in Rockford, Illinois and in Winnebago County who have kept inclusivity and kept intersectionality and kept collectivism at such a, a, a high priority. Okay, please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. I know I said that at the beginning, but I'm going to say it again. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I will holler at you tomorrow at 8 a.m.